We'll be looking at a few familiar things, I hope, for us. But uh, sometimes we need to have those familiar things brought to us. I was going to flip the board had I gotten here and not got tangled up with the technical issues. I was going to jot the, my title down, but I'll just tell it to you. The title for tonight is Sit and Soak or Stand and Soak? Question mark. Sit and Soak or Stand and Soak? S-O-W. Soak, like you're going to soak your hand in Epsom salts, S-O-A-K. Familiar passage, key text for tonight that we've, I'm sure you could probably almost quote it, but so that I don't misquote it. Turn over to Matthew 28. Am I coming through loud enough? Some of you looking kind of quizzical at me. I, I, realize, I mean, that's normal. People look at me quizzically anyway, but... If you can't hear me, why, that's another story. Matthew 28, and we'll start in verse 16 and go through verse 20. And find that in your copy of the scriptures. I'll be reading from the ESV version. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Literally, in the original, it means to the consummation of the age. Let's look at that word authority for just a moment. First off, Jesus said, came and said to them, all authority. And I know I've asked this question many times before, but what does all mean? All, everything. Everything included, nothing left out, regardless of what language you're talking in or translating in. But now that next word, authority, that bears a little bit of pausing. All authority. In the original, the transliterated from the Greek into English is exousia. Exousia. And that means delegated authority. Delegated authority. So what Jesus was saying, God the Father has given to me God the Son, all authority. 
in heaven and on earth. It was delegated to him. Now, <laughs> don't get tangled up on the on well. God is three in one. He's God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. Theologians, scholars have been tangling and data, uh, dissecting that concept, and it's hard. But don't don't get twisted on that. But he's saying that God the Father has delegated to me, God the Son, all this authority. It's delegated authority. I can give you a very real-world example of what delegated authority means from a practical standpoint. <clears throat> Several years ago, when I was working for the sheriff's office back in Arizona as an armed volunteer deputy, I had delegated authority from the elected sheriff of that county. I had a badge, I had a sidearm, I had a patrol vehicle, and by the way, the patrol vehicle was exactly like the regular certified people drove. It didn't have the word volunteer written in two foot tall letters on the side. Because when we rolled up behind somebody, they didn't know there's only there was only one time that somebody questioned and he was uh, from Canada by the way uh, he wasn't he was we were talking about volunteer versus the certified folks so that was the only time somebody ever questioned that but <clears throat> when we would see someone stop by the side of the road day or night that was one of the routine things that we did, it was called a citizen assist. We'd pull up behind them, kick on their deck lights. If it was night, kick on the alley lights and the spotlight. <coughs> Go up and check on the vehicle. Most of the time, somebody was there. I'm, you know, pulled off. I'm looking at my phone, fortunately, instead of trying to drive and look at their phone. Sometimes they'd be lost. Sometimes they just weren't feeling good. So we didn't know what we would find there. That was the most routine thing that we did as volunteers. But it was also the most dangerous thing because we didn't know who or what was in that vehicle. You roll up on something like that at two o'clock in the morning on a two-lane deserted country road, it uh, kind of increases your prayer life, shall we say. <laughs> Quite often we would have to direct traffic when there was a fire or an accident. I can remember many times, many times, standing on the equivalent of Interstate 85 here, there would be a fire, a brush fire, smoke covering the road, emergency vehicles coming. And here I am, little old me, out in lane two, which is the right-hand lane, 
of the road, stopping traffic, and moving them over one lane to keep them out of the way of the vehicles. And then, to make that even better, there would be times I'd have to stop both lanes. Here I am in the middle of an interstate where people, the limit is 75, and of course they were driving 95, and we couldn't do anything because we weren't. That was not part of our deal. But I'd have to stop both lanes. And the Forest Service people would be coming down the emergency lane, so I had to stop traffic and get them on and then get out of the way and get one lane to move. But to do that, here, I, you know, all one of those truckers had to do was to let his or her foot slip off the brake and I would be a grease spot. And I wouldn't have been uh, aggravating a lot of people since then. But because I had that badge, that delegated authority, I could put my hand up and they would stop. How do we approach our Christian walk, our Christian experience? Do we continually sit and soak up teaching and never share it? Or do we go out and share that? I used to phrase it differently and I phrase it now, but sometimes we as Christians can be spiritually overnourished. That's what I mean by sit and soak. We constantly take in things, constantly absorb it. Write our notes, and that's great. But what is that next step that we do or should do? There's another passage we'll look at in this regard to kind of move the thought forward on this um, idea of sharing and sowing. Of course, you know where we're going with that. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are three accounts of sowing the seed that Jesus talked about in his parable. The one I'd like to look at uh, briefly uh, is the account in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 4. And if your Bible is a red-letter Bible, then you'll know that uh, all that prints in red letters. So we always need to pay attention to what Scripture says, but when it has red letters in it, then that's kind of a beacon that jumps out at us. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. The farmer went out to sow his seed as he was scattering seed. Some fell along the path. It was trampled on. 
and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, and when it grew up and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. When he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant, and he said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that, though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. And that was uh, reading from the uh, NIV. So he says, essentially, there was four types of soil. The bad soil, those that would not listen, said there was the rocky soil, they received the word with a good heart at first, but there was no staying power. They, they would not last. The thorny soil, the things of the world began to distract them. And instead of focusing on the word, they looked at the pleasures of this life, this earthly life. And the good soil, of course, produced a bountiful crop based on the soil that it was sown in. The important thing, though, we don't, I don't think, need to be soil examiners necessarily, but seed sowers. Back in my early days, when I first started teaching and sharing the Word of God, I wanted to dig in and share the deep things of God, to share things that 
were not ordinary and routine. I didn't want to teach the same old lessons. Now, that was my understanding 40, 45 years ago. So bear that in mind. For a long, long time, too long, some of my teaching was almost, that, this is not uh, confession time, but I guess it is in a way, so whatever. For too long though, back down the road, my it was almost an academic type exercise. I could have been giving um, a lecture or a talk uh, on the I studied uh, economics in college at undergraduate and part of graduate level. I could have been talking about macro versus microeconomics or the theory of demand and supply, something like that. It was, yes, it was God's word, but it was kind of stale, if you will. So, to try to shift gears a little bit, I would consult, and I, and I fortunately, I was under um, a mentoring pastor who saw a teensy glimmer of ability and encouraged me and helped and gave me guidance, so that was tremendous. So I began to study some uh, resource material reference material. Um, professor so-and-so would have a book, volume, I'd get that. I'd find Dr. So-and-so had a commentary on this particular item, and I would read that. But what did I find I was doing? I was reading more about God's Word than I was reading God's Word. I remember one time looking in the file cabinet at the house and I had a folder full of my notes from some of these days. And I would write out my notes. I used to write them out on legal size, long, in longhand on legal size paper. And I'd put the date on it. I'd look through all that. And I flipped through it and I thought, dear me, those poor people that had to sit and listen to me. I pitched all, I, honestly, I pitched all that stuff out. This was 30, probably 30 years ago. I filled a trash can full of the stuff. But, but, so often we read scripture and it, there's an account of a battle or there's an account of a person that's discussed in scripture or there is a situation where it's going one way and God steps in and the verse says, but God. There's the before and there's after. God steps in. 
There were several, in succeeding years, there were several incidences and situations that brought me to my knees. But I received grace, mercy, forgiveness, love, compassion, and understanding, both for myself and for other people. The words in the scripture became alive to me. They were more than the black and white and red letters on a page. And God, through His Holy Spirit, spoke to me. And it wasn't a loud voice. It wasn't audible. It very well could have been. Hey, you, knucklehead down there, listen. He could easily have done that because I was pretty much a knucklehead back then. But he didn't do that. And as I say, it was not audible, but in my spirit I felt the Holy Spirit speaking to me. And he said, just teach my word. Teach my word. Teach my word. And I realized slowly what he was saying to me. The sermons and lessons that I heard that I thought, well, gee please, here's brother so-and-so talking about salvation or witnessing or whatever. If I had a order for every lesson like that, I could have retired 20 years ago. I've heard that before. But it was those types of lessons that he was saying, take a fresh look at it. Take a fresh look. Bring it into your spirit. Bring it into your realm and share it with the people. And that's what I've been trying to do since then. That's what I tried to do before then, but definitely after that point, I certainly did. Another passage that's uh, familiar to us. Matthew 25. Again with verse 13. And again, we've got a lot of red type if you've got a red letter edition. He says... Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who calls his slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And I'm reading this from the New American Standard. 
the New American Standard, the NIV, um, I think the ESV, and maybe some others translate that word there as slaves. But the original has it the way I believe is a better way. The, the old King James comes across as servant. Servant. In particular, the word there transliterated from the Greek is doulos, doulos. And that was the lowest type of servant in a Jewish household. That was the servant that when people came to visit, he or she was the one that washed the visitor's feet. That was the one, that servant is the one that empty the chamber pots. That was the servant that went to the stable and mucked out the stable. The very lowest bottom tier of any type of hierarchy. It continues in verse, the parable continues with verse 15 and says to one he gave five talents to another two and to another one each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who received five talents went and traded with them, gained five more. Same manner the one who had received two talents gained two more, but he who received the one talent went away, dug in the ground, and hid his master's money. To speed the story up a little bit, you know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, the master comes back, he calls the servants in, says, all right, what have you done with my money? The person that had the five, the four, the, yeah, five talents says, I've gained five more. And the master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The guy that had the two talents came back and said, here's the two you gave me, here's two more. And he said, the servant, uh, the master said the exact same thing to him. Well done good and faithful servants. You were faithful with a few things. Enter into the joy of your master. Notice he did, the master did not make a differentiation in their abilities, but he was focused on their faithfulness to accomplish what the master asked them to do. So the takeaway from that story, for me at least, is to use our talents and skills to the best of our ability. Now we're all different, I realize that. But don't sit and soak all the time. Stand and soak. 
stand and so put our talents to use. And here's another item to think about. It's not a competition. It's not a competition. Just as the uh, servants in the parable had different abilities, we all have different abilities. It's not how we compare ourselves to somebody else, either unfavorably or favorably. A lot of oftentimes we, you know, well, I can't do what she does. I can't do what he does. Sometimes the flip side of that is, well, you know, we pull our robes around this Pharisee style and say, well, they, they did all right, but I can do better. That's the other side of it. It's not a competition. If I tried, if I compared myself to somebody as far as presenting God's Word, I think of Pastor Scott, Dr. Willis, Dr. Patterson, Dave Phillips, <coughs> Kathy, Drew, Dennis, Charlie, on around the room. If I compared myself to you, those folks, I wouldn't get out of bed. I'd pull the cover up and not make it. I wouldn't get out. I wouldn't do it. But I'm not comparing myself to them. Lois would have to give me breakfast in bed. <laughs> that wouldn't work out too well past the first day, probably. <laughs> Don't compare yourself to somebody. Use what you have. I, I urge, I implore, I encourage you to do that. I mentioned this one other time I had the opportunity to share with you. Back in the early 70s, my first wife and I were attending a, a church, the, the same church where the pastor mentored me tremendously. And there was one particular Sunday that um, one of the little kids' class didn't have a teacher. So I was kind of filling in as superintendent, which is not that big of a deal. So I came upstairs, and there was a large ladies' group. There were probably 20, 25 ladies in this class. And probably the youngsters of the group were, I would estimate, in their 50s. Most of them were 60, 70, and beyond. So they had sat under teaching week after month after year, mostly by the same pastor. And so I pled my case, ladies, class so-and-so needs a teacher, sister, whoever is not able to be here. Would one of you all just go down and 
take that class for this morning, teach that class. And there were two, three or four little kids, you know, grade school. Not that big of a deal. And I waited. And I waited. And I waited. Finally, a lady in the back row, her name wasn't Becky, by the way, <laughs> raised her hand and said, oh, I'll go down and teach. I said, thank you. I appreciate that. I'd never seen that lady before. She was a visitor. <laughs> a visitor. Now, folks, as a prosecuting attorney type, I rest my case. That was a situation of sit and soak and not any corresponding action. Some of the older folks, not just the ladies, the men in that group, and it was pre predominantly an older generation type uh, church, they took the position, we have put in our time, we have done our work, it's time for us to sit back and let the young people take over. My wife and I were not quite familiar with that type of a setting, that type of an attitude. We often talked about it. We said, well, brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so and on down the line, these folks have been there for years. They have a lot of experience. They have a lot of understanding. They have a lot of knowledge and wisdom that can be passed along and shared instead of sitting back and I don't know thinking about their cabin in the corner of glory land or whatever I don't know that sounds familiar there may be a song like that but don't worry if there is I'm not going to sing it you know that but um that, that really made a deep impression on me of what it means to absorb the teaching that you have, that you're experiencing, and for whatever reason, I never questioned anybody, I never asked, I didn't want to raised my blood pressure more than it was at the time. But I don't know why they didn't, why no one volunteered. Maybe they were just more comfortable sitting there, taking their notes, putting it in their Bible or their notebook, closing it up, going home, and maybe never even looking at it again. I don't know. But it was just a real unsettling, eye-opening type of experience for me. question often comes up, maybe, in a church setting. 
When do you retire? When do you retire from God's service? Well, I've not seen that in any manual per se, but let me give you a possible tip, a thought to consider. As long as we are physically able at ourselves, we keep going on. We retire, unquote, when God calls us home. When He says, okay, son, daughter, it's time for you to come and live with me now. That's when we retire. We keep working as long as we are possibly able. James 5.16, a familiar verse to us, says, <clears throat> Therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. The old King James says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. That word effective, again, that's one that we need to pause and look at a bit. In the transliterated Greek, it's intergero. To put, to put forth power, to be operative, to work. It's an energetic word. It's a word charged with power. It is a not passive. It is an energetic prayer. It's not a flimsy prayer, if you want to call it that. John 9, 4 says, I must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. This is Jesus talking. The night is coming when no man can work. When Jesus began His ministry, He knew, in essence, it was a temporary job lasting a little over three years while He was here on earth with His disciples. And the people that they discipled and so on and so forth and the early church spread. But he knew his time on earth was limited. Whatever our age, whatever age we are, If, even if you're a, a recent Christian, you have experience. You have understanding of God's Word. And for those of us that don't always care to remember what the clock and the calendar says when the birthdays come around, we have that experience. Remember, remember we read that parable earlier a few minutes ago about the soil. 
We don't need to be soil inspectors. We just need to be seed sowers. And as Matthew 28 said, we are to go out and make disciples of all nations. We are witnesses. We are witnesses for Jesus. When I said we don't need to be soil inspectors, sometimes we think, well, yeah, the Lord's telling me to share some good news with so-and-so, but he, he's not going to listen to me. He's never, I've tried it before, and, you know, he just shuts me down. He says, I don't want to hear about it. You may have, have friends that are like that. Who knows? Family members. Those are usually the toughest ones to reach because they know us. <laughs> they, they've seen us grow up. They've seen us at our worst and hopefully sometimes our best. But let me leave you with this thought. That person, that family, that individual, that friend, that co-worker, whoever it is, that you think may not be receptive. Share that word. You may not be the first person to talk to them about Jesus. You may be the 10th. You may be the 15th. You may be the 20th. Who knows? God can work on their heart and what you say will cause them to say, say that again. Tell me more. I want to hear what you've got to say about this person, Jesus. I've heard somebody say that before, but this sounds different. It's making sense to me. I feel peace. I feel calm. Tell me more. Tell me how I can be saved. That's what you want to do. That's what you want to hear. Sometimes we look back at our lives and we wonder what we do, what we have done. Maybe wish we'd done more. As my older brother is fond of saying, by the way, I've kind of been reconciled with him recently. We were estranged for a period of time, which is good that things are improving. He was fond of saying his head has gotten over, and he's 86 right now. He's fond of saying, well, there's not as much road before as there is behind. 
I want to close with a poem. I didn't write it. It's anonymous. People have tried to copyright it, but when I first heard this about 30 years ago, it was in the public domain. The author is still unknown. I have read it at several funerals for my family. The first one, first time I read it was at my mother's funeral in 2002 when she passed on at the tender age of 98. The next time I used it, <clears throat> when I had part of in had a part in the service was for my son-in-law, one of my sons-in-law, who passed away at the young age of 49, leaving my daughter and four grandkids. service for my sister-in-law in Kentucky. You've probably heard it. If you haven't, it's something to think about. The title is called The Dash. The Dash. D-A-S-H. I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of his friend he referred to the dates on his tombstone from beginning to end. He noted that first came the date of his birth, and he spoke of the second with tears. But he said that what mattered most of all was that dash between the years. For that dash represents all the time that he spent alive on earth. And only now those who loved him know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? Or you never know how much time is left. You could be at dash mid-range. If we could just slow down enough to consider what's true and what's real and always try to understand the way other people feel. And be less quick to anger and show appreciation more. and love the people in our lives like we've never loved them before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, 
remembering that this special dash might only last a little while. So, when your eulogy and mine is read with your life's actions to rehash, would you be pleased about the things they have to say about your dash? I guess my, my prayer for all of us tonight, those watching and those not able to be here, is that we stand and sow the word, that we be the witnesses that we're called to be. And we quit and we retire when God says it's time.